And now hear our text from Revelation chapter 20 as we continue our study in the book of Revelation. Now, when the thousand years have expired, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle whose number is as the sand of the sea. They went up on the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city, and fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. The devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Thus far the reading of God's word, let's give thanks. Father in heaven, we thank you for the way that you have written history, both past and present and future, and as you lead us into the future, you do not lead us into a dark, misty corridor of time, but a time where you've already planned the end from the beginning. And so we trust in you as you walk us through the days and the changes and the seasons of life. Father, put our trust in you and help us to uh, walk in that faith, knowing the word that you've put before us today. Father, strengthen us with this, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Depending on which scholar you trust, William Shakespeare either invented between 400 and 1700 English words, or maybe he was just the first person to ever write them down in English. And with all of those words that he invented or, or wrote down for the first time, he created dozens and dozens and dozens of phrases which we still use today, some of which contain words that we don't really use outside of those phrases. One of my favorites from Hamlet is the phrase, hoist with his own petard. That's just fun to say, and, and it's fun to use, and it sounds quite awful to be hoist with one's own petard. It sounds very ominous, except who knows what that means? What does it mean? We know it means somehow getting caught in your own trap, but no one uses the word hoist anymore. Have you used the word hoist in the last three weeks? I don't think you have. And very few people actually know what a petard is. This line comes in Hamlet, in the scene where Prince Hamlet has discovered a plot against his life, and he responds with the hope that the conspirator fall into his own trap that he be hoist, that is, lifted up, by the, uh, uh, lifted up from the ground, he be hoist by his own petard. A petard is a small bomb or a small explosive device. In other words, Hamlet's hope is that he get blowed up by his own bomb. That was his wish. Now, I could be super pretentious and act like I know exactly what's going on in Hamlet, which I don't, I, don't, I don't understand what's going on in Hamlet. And I could pretend like I know how it all worked out in the play. But why do that when there are more readily accessible and relatable characters in literature and film who fall into their own traps, who design traps and fall into them? And I'm speaking, of course, of Wiley Coyote. I, I hope... <laughs> I hope when I say Wiley Coyote that children, your, your fathers have educated you in the classics. Um, if not, you've got some homework to do and you've got to figure out who this is. Wiley Coyote was often hoist with his own petard. Now, I'm not making any moral judgments about coyotes eating birds. Coyotes can eat birds all the time. There are no moral uh, implications to coyotes eating birds, but ordinarily, Coyotes don't order things out of catalogs. Uh, so uh, Wiley Coyote is representative of a kind of plotting 
scheming, powerful person who is repeatedly thwarted by the underdog. And as you remember, Wiley Coyote would develop these extravagantly complicated plans. He would order all kinds of devices from the Acme Corporation to build a trap to catch the Roadrunner. But without fail, he would fall into his own trap. There would be an ironic reversal. Poetic justice would be served. The anvil would fall on him. Uh, he would fall off the cliff or he would be blowed up. Uh, it's funny because it's subversive. It's funny because we're, we're satisfied to see the pursuer, the conspirator fail and get caught in his own trap. We laugh because things are, are true and consistent with what we like to see. And it's more than just entertaining. In fact, the wicked receiving the penalty that he cooked up for the innocent is supported by God's law. In, in Deuteronomy 19, we're told that if a man rises up to plot against his neighbor, and if he makes a false accusation, then the punishment for the crime he accused his neighbor of falsely, the, the punishment for that crime shall be applied to him. Well, God's law takes false accusations seriously. False accusations can ruin somebody's life. And so before you rise up as an accuser, you had better be sure that you have all the information correct or else. If God's law is consistently applied, you will receive the judgment that you plotted for your neighbor to receive. One prominent place in the Bible where we see this very thing played out, where God reverses the judgment against his people and in fact applies it to the ones who are plotting against them is in the book of Esther. Haman, the Agagite, builds a gallows for Mordecai the Jew. He's hoping to destroy Mordecai along with the rest of the Jews, but as God orchestrates this series of events and God meets out holy justice, Haman is hoist on his own gallows and Mordecai, Esther, and the people of God are all delivered. We like to see that. We rejoice. They even uh, created a whole holiday out of the events of the book of Esther. The, the, the holiday of Purim comes out of, the, out of the story of Esther. Haman is an accuser. He's a plotter. He's a schemer who ultimately plans out his own destruction. He builds the gallows that he is hung on. Do you know who else plots out their own destruction? We do. We devise our own destruction when we decide that we're going to commit treason against an infinitely holy God, we sow the seeds of our future sorrow. Sin is self-destruction. Ignoring what God says and to determining in our own heart that we're going to do what we want to do, it's like setting a bear trap for ourselves and then circling right around and stepping in it. It's like digging a pit for ourselves to fall into. It's like sitting in a tree and sawing off the branch that we're sitting on. That is what sin is. Sin is insane. It, it makes no rational sense. And when we pursue wickedness over obedience, what we're doing is we're choosing death over life. We're choosing rejection over communion. We're choosing turmoil over order. We set ourselves up to fail and we rob ourselves of peace and rest and life. It's, it's like we're picking our own pockets. We're stealing from ourselves. Now, of course, Satan is ultimately the master at this. 
Sin doesn't make you smart or clever or wise. Sin doesn't improve your cognitive abilities. Sin makes you dumb. I mean, dumb, dumb. And, and Satan is the most well-practiced, prideful, arrogant rebel against the Lord, which means that he may be the dumbest individual in the cosmos. And it is he, in, in the end, who is going to be epically hoist with his own petard. And Revelation 20 shows us exactly how this happens. We're now in this section of Revelation that's telling us about things that have not happened yet from our perspective in history. Up to this point, we've been reading about things that were to shortly take place from John's perspective. He tells us that repeatedly. These things are to shortly take place. The end of the old covenant world, uh, God wrapping up his dealings with Israel, all of this is completed by AD 70. We don't start inserting thousands of years into the timeline of Revelation until the text does. But now we're told in chapter 20 that Satan is bound for a long expanse of time and that the church reigns on earth for this long expanse of time. Satan is not destroyed during this time, but he is limited. Satan is bound in a very specific way. He is bound that he may not deceive the nations. Satan is unsuccessful in putting up any significant organized defense against the advance of the gospel or against the church. And the church has been given the keys and the chains to keep Satan bound, to lock up the gates of hell. When the church is faithful, Satan is restrained, the pit is closed up, and the gates of hell are locked. So the church reigns from heaven and on earth, which we saw last week, and the church will continue to reign and increase in glory and increase in influence until the gospel is preached to every nation, the gospel is preached to every creature, and the knowledge of the glory of the Lord covers the earth as the waters cover the sea. That, that truth is what fuels our mission. It's why we educate our children. It's why we think generationally. It's why we're thinking in terms of not just today, but in terms of a long and glorious and victorious future for the church on earth in history in times, because we have a future and that future is victorious. But now as we continue reading, we find that there is to be one last battle where Satan is allowed to make his final fatal miscalculation where Satan is provoked to step out into the open and to be ultimately defeated and cast out forever as we move into the time of the final judgment. So we're just going to take these few verses today and try to understand what is happening here. Verse 7 of Revelation 20. <clears throat> now, when the thousand years have expired, Satan will be released from prison. Now, your response to that might be very similar to my response to that when I read that. Satan will be released from prison. Why? <laughs> Why is this happening? Why would God ever unlock the chain? Why would he release Satan and allow him free reign once again? Why didn't he just destroy him a long time ago instead of chaining him up? Well, we're not given a list of reasons why. But we do have this whole book. We've got a whole Bible full of the revelation of the mind of God and the will of God and the pleasure of the triune God so that we might be able to come up with a few possible answers to that. The first answer that I have is that God is delighted to work through history in stages. 
He always does this. He could have created the world in complete maturity with one word, with one thought. He could have created the cosmos and could have created the planet and could have developed opera and art and, and baseball and sushi and, and uh, you know, ocelots and, and kangaroos, just with one word, just every, everything all at once with a thought. But he didn't, did he? No, he, he, he created the world in six days, in six stages. He created the heavens and then populated the heavens with sun, moon, and stars and the planets. He created the land and then populated the land with the plants and animals. He created the oceans and then filled the oceans with all kinds of, of living things. And then when he created man, he created mankind by creating the male first. He, he created Adam and left Adam alone for a little while. Let him figure out that being alone is not a good thing. And then he created Eve a little while later. He created Eve and, and, then, uh, and, then, and then brought man and woman together. God could have created them both at the same time, but it pleased God to work through this gradually through stages of development to give Adam time to learn something in his in his solitude that he would not have learned otherwise. And so throughout history, God has been developing humanity by doing the very same thing through many stages, through hard lessons, through setbacks, through big falls, through disasters and wars. And God has intervened through corrections and reformations and deliverances. God gave his own son not as a fully developed adult human man. God didn't, he could have sent Jesus down as a fully developed grown man straight from heaven to preach truth to us, to work miracles and to die for us. But that's not what he did. God gave his son as a baby so that he could grow, so that he could grow in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. Hebrews 5.8 tells us that Jesus learned obedience through suffering. And that's something that always turns my brain inside out. I don't understand how did Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, grow in wisdom? How did Jesus, the co-eternal son, learn obedience? And yet, that's precisely what he did. I don't have all the answers, but I do know that it pleases God to work through stages of maturity so that even his own son had to go through those stages of maturity. Uh, it pleases God to not make things all at once, to not instantly transform things, but to demonstrate his mercy and wisdom through progress and stages of maturity. Just like he does in your life and just like he does in my life. Why are there sunny days and why are there gloomy, rainy, nasty days? Why, why are there periods of time where it feels like everything you touch turns to gold and everything you do, it just works out. It's just so amazing. And why are there days where it seems like nothing is working out, no matter how hard you try? Every sickness, every heartache, every loss and sorrow, and every victory and every celebration and every promotion and every blessing is training you. God could immediately transform us into glory. We could be born as babies. He could regenerate us and he could take us perfect and innocent without ever committing any 
crime or sin or rebellion or hateful thought, he could take us and sw just swipe us straight to the presence of Jesus without any of the heartache, any of the struggle, any of the trouble in between. But he doesn't do that. No, because it pleases him, it pleases him for you to grow up in this life on earth to prepare you for eternity. You are being transformed into the image of Jesus. You are learning obedience through suffering, just as Jesus did. And that's why he, for all of us who are here, ordinarily, he takes us through these processes of maturity, through these stages of maturity. So then, back to Revelation 20, one answer to why God releases Satan and why God puts humanity through one final struggle, through one final conflict, is that it, it pleases God to chain Satan, to allow the kingdom to grow and to allow the kingdom to flourish to a point of cultural saturation. And then to push history forward to the final phase of glory to have one final struggle, one last conflict before heaven and earth are in complete harmony and, and to allow this conflict to push us into that eternal state. And I see a few practical dimensions of this, knowing human behavior. Let's just uh, try to think uh, forward into history when the nations are Christianized and all the empires of the earth are discipled by the church when the church completes her mission in preaching the gospel to every creature, uh, when the earth is covered with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea, it won't mean that every single person is regenerate. It won't mean that every single person is obedient. Until the final judgment, there are always tares growing among the wheat. Uh, the prophet Ezekiel has this vision of a river of life flowing out of the temple that sweetens and refreshes all the waters of the world. And yet, he says, there are still swamps and marshes that are not healed. You can look that up. That's Ezekiel 47, 11. Chapter 47 is all about the river of life. And in verse 11, he makes that comment about the swamps and the marshes that are not healed by the river of life. You see, up until the final judgment, up until the final resurrection of all things, sin is going to be present. Death will not be eradicated yet. So the time that we're reading about, this is not heaven. Heaven and earth are not completely aligned. Uh, we're, we have not reached perfection, not yet. And so if you can imagine getting to a point in history where the Christian faith is assumed by everyone and yet sin is not fully and finally and utterly defeated, heaven and earth are not fully aligned in every single dimension, well, people will be tempted to think, well, everything's good. Everything's under control. We don't need God anymore. We don't need to cry out to him for deliverance. Any challenge that comes up, well, we can lick it on our own. We can take care of this. And then in arrogance and in our haughtiness and our pride, we fall. This has already happened so many times in history. In the middle of the Middle Ages, Western Europe was uh, pretty near heaven on earth. The, the reign of Christ was, was evident just about everywhere you looked. And then later, after the Reformation, in Switzerland and Germany and in England, Christ's reign was evident. New England in the 18th century was pretty near heaven. But, but what is New England like today? Well, it's not like that at all. 
And, and the Lord said this was, would happen back in Deuteronomy 8. When Moses is giving the law to the people before they go back into, they, they head into the land of Canaan, he tells them that this is going to happen. Listen, listen closely to Deuteronomy 8, verse 11. Beware that you do not forget Yahweh your God by not keeping his commandments, his judgments, and his statutes, which I command you today, lest when you have eaten and are full and have built beautiful houses and dwell in them, and when your herds and your flocks multiply and your silver and your gold are multiplied and all that you have is multiplied, when your heart is lifted up and you forget Yahweh your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage, then you say in your heart, my power and the might of my hand have gained me this wealth. This is what happens. God's blessings can be received in such a way that we think somehow we earned this. We did this on our own. And now we're uh, you know, we're invincible. But what, is, what does the Lord say? As the nations which Yahweh destroys before you, so you shall perish because you would not be obedient to the voice of Yahweh your God. You're inclined to think we achieve this. God is happy. Obviously, God is happy with us. So maybe we can relax a little bit. Maybe we can just indulge the flesh. I mean, how bad could it be? God is so pleased with us. What could the consequences be? So it stands to reason then that this very thing, this very dynamic could be seen on a global scale, uh, that, that right before the final judgment, all of humanity must be reminded who their savior is. We'll have many deliverances and, and, and many rescues over the next many, many, many generations. But Revelation 20 tells us we are looking forward to at least one more great deliverance, one more great victory over Satan. And then when that is accomplished, we'll praise him for this for the remainder of eternity. Now, another thought, and I'm not sure where this fits, but maybe you, you can meditate on this and, and see where it, where it fits or how it works for you. Thinking about this repetition of the symbolic number 1,000 and what that might imply. Before the flood, you'll remember, and before something changed with the firmament, something changed with the environment of the earth with the flood. Before the flood, men were living to be almost 1,000 years old. Maybe Adam and maybe mankind were created to initially live to be about 1,000. And then perhaps when you get to be about 1,000 years old, then like Enoch, you're uh, translated to glory. Like Elijah was just removed from the earth and translated uh, to greater glory and maturity. Maybe the initial design was for man to live about a thousand years and then to move out and make room for more people. But because of wickedness and because of corruption, God mercifully limited our lifespans, mercifully limited us to about 80 years. Now, uh, will we ever live to these long uh, times again? Will we ever get back to this? Well, let's, I mean, I don't want to get too science fiction with it, but let's, let's just think as we continue to make medical and dietary advancements through the centuries, when we learn how to take dominion over and tame the earth, when we eliminate the things that kill us, or maybe we just learn how to obey the fifth commandment. You know, the fifth commandment that says, obey your father and mother, so your days will be long upon the land which the Lord your God has given you. Maybe we'll just figure out how to do that. Maybe we'll figure out how to obey authority, obey mom and dad, and then the Lord will give us longer lives and our lives will start to stretch out 
to a thousand years. Uh, we've got a long time here. We're talking, about, we're talking about centuries and centuries, and we're talking about generations and generations. And when humanity has been restored to this point, Satan will be allowed to bring his last challenge, and all of creation will be transfigured like Enoch. Fire comes from heaven, just like it did with Elijah, and all of humanity goes through this final stage of maturation that God has prepared for us. There's a certain symmetry to this, which God also loves. God loves symmetry. Uh, the first creation was born out of water. The first creation came from water. It was also judged by water in the flood. This new creation is born in the fire of Pentecost and will be judged and transformed by fire in the end. You see the, you see the symmetry there. Well, let's continue in verse 8. <clears throat> Satan will be released, verse 8, and will go out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth. See, this is what he's been prevented from doing throughout this stage of history. But now he's given a little leash, a little free reign to go work his deception among the nations. It seems that the deception of nations primarily has to do with rulers. The kings and the presidents and the prime ministers will be deceived into thinking that somehow the church is a threat. The kingdom of heaven is a problem and they need to get to work on eliminating it. The nations will be aligned in such a way that they haven't been since Babel or maybe since they haven't been since the first century. And this alignment of the authorities of the earth will embolden the rebels, the little antichrists in the back alleys and the backwaters. It will embolden them all to expose themselves. But this will be a very short-lived endeavor. It's going to flare up and it's going to be put down finally and fatally and decisively. And, and to show us how this works, John puts three little words in here, almost parenthetically, to remind us of the kind of scenario this is going to be. He inserts these little words. He says, Gog and Magog. He says, he will go out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle. Uh, well, if you remember Gog and Magog, uh, you'll know all you need to know about this conflict. You remember that, right? You remember that from the Old Testament? You've got that down. And so we can just keep going. So we know what that is. No, I had to study it and we have to study it together and remind ourselves, what are Gog and Magog? Well, this is a reference back to Ezekiel, which it, occur, it occurred to me that we've been jumping back to Ezekiel to understand things in Revelation more and more over the last couple of weeks. And so it becomes obvious that, that, um, that this section of Revelation has been following Ezekiel's outline. Ezekiel's prophecies had immediate fulfillment in his day, but a greater fulfillment in the things that Revelation is telling us about. So let me give you a quick primer on Ezekiel. Let's uh, sharpen our minds and focus for just a few minutes on Ezekiel, and this will all just click into place, and this will make sense, I promise. Uh, Ezekiel was a prophet who lived right at the end of the kingdom of Judah, he lived right at the beginning of the Babylonian captivity. So he's about 600 AD. I'm, I'm sorry, 600 BC, 600 years before Christ. The book of Ezekiel begins with Ezekiel standing on the banks of the river Chebar. He's together with the captives who are going into the Babylonian captivity. The book begins with Ezekiel seeing God's chariot. 
his glory, together with the four living creatures who are always around his throne, he sees God's glory pick up out of the temple, out of Jerusalem, cross over the river, and go into Babylon with the captives. That's how Ezekiel opens. So God's chariot goes up from Judah over into Babylon, which means that God's presence is going with his people into exile. God has not abandoned his people. He's going to love them. He's going to cover them. He's going to protect them. And then uh, later in Ezekiel's message, in his, in his book, we see that vision of the dry bones that we saw last week. Uh, the question there is, can this lifeless nation, can this culture, can this, this dead kingdom of God's people, can it ever be revived? And of course, in, in the vision of the Valley of Dry Bones, the Holy Spirit blows through and gives life to this dead nation, to this lifeless nation, and resurrects it. This is societal resurrection. That's Ezekiel 37. In 38 and 39, Ezekiel 38 and 39, we read about this mysterious conflict of Gog the prince and his land, which is called Magog. Let's just hold on to that, right? It's a code name that Ezekiel uses for a conflict that is in his future. Let's hold on to that. So there's resurrection with the Valley of Dry Bones, national resurrection, kingdom resurrection, this conflict that he calls Gog and Magog, and then for chapter 40 and for the next several chapters, we get a tour of the heavenly temple, which is to be reflected in the earthly temple that's about to be built. So to simplify, we'll make it super simple. Here's the outline. Here's what Ezekiel tells us about. Resurrection, national resurrection, valley of dry bones. Just think resurrection, something about Gog and Magog, and then uh, the holy temple, the temple being resurrected, the temple being rebuilt um, and these three things come one right after another. Resurrection, Gog and Magog, temple. Now hold on to that outline. Now let's zoom into the middle and try to figure out what in the world is this conflict that he's talking about that he calls Gog and Magog. If your, uh, your Bible's handy, we can read it together. I'm just going to skim through Ezekiel 38. And if you want to join me over there, you are welcome to do so. <clears throat> Ezekiel 38, verse 1 now the word of Yahweh came to me saying, son of man, set your face against Gog of the land of Magog. So Gog is the prince, Magog is the land, the prince of Rosh, Meshach, and Tubal, and prophesy against him and say, thus says the Lord God, behold, I am against you, O Gog, the prince of Rosh, Meshach, and Tubal. I will turn you around, put hooks into your jaws and lead you out with all your army, horses and horsemen, all splendidly clothed, a great company with bucklers and shields, all of them handling swords. So all the world is going to be drawn out, provoked to battle as if God is grabbing them with hooks and dragging them out to expose them and to defeat them. That's the, that's the first image we get here. And then if we skip down to verse 10, Thus says the Lord God, on that day it shall come to pass that thoughts will arise in your mind and you will make an evil plan. You will say, I will go up against the land of unwalled villages. I will go to a peaceful people who dwell safely, all of them dwelling without walls and having neither bars nor gates to 
take plunder and to take booty to stretch out your hand against the waste places that are again inhabited and against the people gathered from the nations who have acquired livestock and goods who dwell in the midst of the land. Sheba, Dedan, the merchants of Tarshish and all their young lions will say to you, have you come to take plunder? Have you gathered your army to take booty, to carry away silver and gold, to take away livestock and goods, to take great plunder? So it's all about plunder. It's all about pillage. The victims are defenseless. They live in unwalled cities. The plot is to eliminate the life and the livelihood of these people who are the target. How does this turn out? Skip to verse 18. And it will come to pass at the same time when God comes against the land of Israel, says the Lord God, that my fury will show in my face for in my jealousy and in the fire of my wrath, I have spoken. Surely in that day, there will be a great earthquake in the land of Israel so that the fish of the sea, the birds of the heavens, the beasts of the field, all creeping things that creep on the earth and all men who are on the face of the earth shall shake at my presence. The mountain shall be thrown down. The steep places shall fall and every wall shall fall to the ground. I will call for a sword against Gog throughout all my mountains, says the Lord God. Every man's sword will be against his brother and I will bring him to judgment with pestilence and bloodshed. I will rain down on him, on his troops and on the many peoples who are with him, flooding rain, great hailstones, fire and brimstone. Thus I will magnify myself and sanctify myself and I will be known in the eyes of many nations. Then they shall know that I am, am Yahweh. So God's enemies have been exposed. They have been stirred up by their bloodthirst and their greed in order to be drawn out, publicly humiliated, publicly defeated, and for Yahweh to be known among the nations. That's the battle in Ezekiel. That's the battle of Gog and Magog. Okay, when did that happen? When did that take place? Well, let's go back to history and match it up to Ezekiel's outline. Ezekiel is talking about things that are going to happen 70 years into his future. And first, there's the national resurrection. There's the valley of dry bones. The spirit breathes through and resurrects the nations. Uh, when does that happen? Well, Cyrus issues a decree for the Jews to return to their homeland and rebuild the temple. That's the, that's the fulfillment of that, of that vision. Second, we have Gog and Magog, again, whatever that is. Third, the temple and the city are rebuilt with Ezra and Nehemiah. Okay, what book of the Bible fits in between the events described here? What book of the Bible describes this battle of Gog and Magog? Let's think about this. Where are God's people threatened with plunder and elimination? Where are God's enemies throughout the empire exposed? Where are they publicly humiliated and defeated? Well, this is the book of Esther. The book of Esther describes the plot of Haman to plunder and destroy the Jews. He conspires to kill Mordecai and he ends up hoist with his own petard. There is a linguistic connection between Gog and Magog and Agag, which if you'll remember, Haman was an Agagite. He was a descendant of Amalekite royalty. The Amalekites are notorious for opportunistically attacking Israel right after a huge victory. The Amalekites are always showing up and Haman is in this long line of these, of these Amalekites. So it all seems to click together. Gog and Magog is Ezekiel's label for what happens in Esther, which, as you'll remember, it's all in his future. All of this is in Ezekiel's future. 
So what is John doing in Revelation 20? John is inserting this little historical footnote, like he does often, he'll do this, he'll say, uh, this is like Babylon, or this is like Jezebel, or this is like Sodom. Uh, John has done this throughout the book of Revelation. He gives little clues so that when he, he references this Old Testament city or person or event, we say, oh yeah, okay, that makes sense. I know what's going on here. So into this, John inserts this little phrase. He puts Gog and Magog so that we say, oh yeah, we're supposed to think about Ezekiel here. We're supposed to go back and study Ezekiel. We're supposed to go back and read Esther. And then we understand what's happening. We can, we can see what's, what's going on. So once again, what Ezekiel tells us is that there's national resurrection there's something about Gog and Magog. There's a conflict where God's enemies are exposed and defeated. And then there's the temple. Well, it's the same outline that John is following in Revelation 20. We just read last week, this is the first resurrection. And I pointed back to the Valley of Dry Bones. And I said, this is national. This is, this is a kingdom resurrection. The kingdom has been established with Jesus as, as the center. This is the new kingdom that's been resurrected. Then we get Gog and Magog, a battle where? All of God's enemies are exposed. The leader is hoist with his own petard. Then we get the establishment of the temple city, which is what Revelation 21 is all about. Gog and Magog is just John saying, go freshen up on Ezekiel and you'll know what's going on here. And what is happening is that once again, here in, in Revelation 20, God's people are going to be the bait in a trap that brings out all the secret enemies of the kingdom. When the world is Christianized, there are still going to be back alleys and ditches. There are going to be swamps and tares of rebellion and sedition. There's going to be underground treason. And all of these enemies are going to be brought right out into the open so that they can be destroyed. The purpose of Satan being released is so that he can walk right into this trap. Satan is going to be the new Haman. He's going to uh, be uh, uh, destroyed because he's not going to play it cool. He, he has no restraint. He has thousands of years of pent-up rage at this point. He'll expose himself and he'll expose his minions. He'll get them all in one place and they'll all be nuked. Now, you may say, well, Satan can read this and he can, he can know what's coming. Doesn't he, doesn't he know what to expect? Doesn't he know what's coming? Well, do you think he really believes God? Do you think he reads something and says, oh yeah, that's how it's going to happen? Do you think he thinks that God's telling the truth? Also, never forget that he's on God's plan and he's on God's schedule. And so even though he hates it, he can't help himself. He, he, someone once said, Satan is like a child who has to climb up into God's lap to slap his face. So, Satan is like a petulant child who doesn't even know how pathetic he is. So by letting him out, God sets the trap. Satan works his own destruction by taking the bait, by deceiving the nations, by gathering them all together so that they can be destroyed all at once. They get exposed and they get destroyed. It's just like the cross. The cross was a trap for Satan. Satan thought he had Jesus. Satan thought he had it all worked out. He thought he had it all orchestrated, but instead salvation and deliverance and life for the world came from the cross. So now uh, we see that Satan goes out in the rest of verse eight, he goes out to gather them together for battle whose number is as the sand of the sea. 
In the Old Testament, whenever we read the enemies were like the sand of the sea, that means that their destruction is imminent. We know we're about to win whenever we see the enemies are like the sand of the sea. The Canaanite nations are described as the sand of the sea, and then Joshua defeats them. The Midianites are described like the sand of the sea, and then Gideon defeats them. Well, the same thing keeps happening. All the nations get stirred up against God's people. They get gathered together in one place. They align themselves together, and they get defeated all at the same time. How many times in the Old Testament do you see all these kings aligning together? They just, they just make it real convenient. They all gather together in one place, and then they get destroyed at the same time. Well, that's going to happen here. Verse 9, <clears throat> they went up on the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. Uh, the beloved city is now the church, the new Jerusalem. They all get on the same page. They draw themselves together into one place. So they can be defeated together. Uh, and fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. It's very similar to what Ezekiel describes, which I read just a minute ago. Verse 10, the devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. It's over before it starts. And then we have the ultimate and final eternal judgment of Satan. <laughs> Satan is not the king of hell. Satan doesn't run hell. Satan is not the boss. Satan is not the king of hell like we see in the cartoons. You know, we always see Satan is in control, working all these tortures and whatever. Satan's not in charge there. He's, he's not in charge here and he's not in charge there. God is in charge and, and Satan is subjected to the same conscious eternal torment that his sons are. So how should we meditate on? We're going to stop here. We're going to finish chapter 20 next week. So, so what should we take home with us? I've got three very short things that I want to brand into your heart and mind before we leave this section today. A um, couple of good themes to take home with you. First of all, keep this with you. Sin is self-destruction. Yeah, sin is, is rebellion against an infinitely holy and just God. Sin is a slap in the face to God's uh, goodness. It's, it's a lack of gratitude for all of his good provisions, for all of his care for us. So, so even if you convince yourself in sin that you aren't hurting anybody, that uh, there are no immediate consequences of your actions, you're still committing acts of treason against your king, against your creator. However, it is also true that sin kills you. The wages of sin is death. Sin kills your confidence. Sin wastes your time. It weighs your heart down with guilt. It makes you vulnerable to all kinds of additional compromises. Sin makes you ineffective and impotent in the world. Sin kills your relationships to other people. It kills your relationships to your work in the world. Sin kills your relationship to God. When you are covered in sin without repenting, you are covered in, in shame. You're ashamed and shame covers every one of your interactions so that sinful habits, besetting sins are, are, are like, it's like deliberately planting weeds in, in your own garden. You, you don't see it till harvest time, but there you see, oh yeah, uh, that's what I did to myself. Sometimes sin is like taking a sledgehammer to the foundation and walls of your own house. The destruction is, is cumulative and immediate. You're attacking yourself. When Satan is freed, he goes right out and he sets himself up for his final failure because sin is dumb. My sin is dumb. It's dumb, dumb, dumb. Your sin is dumb and it's a deliberate effort to remove yourself from life. 
you know it's awful, you know God hates it, you know it's despised, you know it's not gonna bring you anything but heartache, it's not gonna bring you anything but sorrow, it's gonna cut you off from life and you do it anyway. That ain't smart, that, that's not brilliant. Uh, you, you don't get any awards or gold stars for that. So understand this, that sin kills you and sin wastes your time and that sin is dumb. It is self-destructive. Know this, going into it, even resisting temptation, knowing this kills me, this cuts me off from life. That's the first thing. The second thing is, is that as hard as it is for us to conceive that humanity at one point is going to trade this golden age of glory. It's going to trade this time for rebellion and war. As, as hard as that is for us to conceive of, we know how many times we've done that very thing. Good times tempt us to think that we're doing fine on our own. God's blessings can turn our hearts to have contempt for God. This is what he said in Deuteronomy chapter eight. He says, you're gonna be living in good houses, you're gonna have good land, and your hearts are gonna turn against me because you're gonna be satisfied and thinking that you did this yourself. So we must always keep in front of us that even when things are really, 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 really good, sin has not been eradicated in us. We can never let our guard down or begin to believe that we have somehow outgrown the need for obedience to God. We've never outgrown the need for repentance, for worship. You never outgrow your duty to confess your sins, to receive forgiveness from God, to hear God's word, and to sit at his table. Don't use good times as an opportunity for sin, thinking, oh, everything's fine now. I'm not going to have any bad results. I mean, what's the worst that can happen? God is going to overlook it. Don't, because that is what brings us to this, this conflict, and it's what brings us over and over to failure and sorrow and misery. Uh, don't, don't buy that lie. And the last thing, the very last thing here, is to not despair when you see sin exposed in the world. And, and I, I have to say this to myself because I do this frequently. I do this often. When wickedness is brought right out into the open, when wickedness is heralded and celebrated, when people in positions of power lie straight to your face and you know they're lying and they know they're lying and they know you know they're lying, but they lie anyway and they lie to your face, when hatefulness toward the church and hatefulness toward the Lord Jesus is shouted through every medium, through television and internet and news, and everything is just shouting hatefulness toward God's law and the church and the Lord Jesus, when, when, when it gets to that point, that's when I want to turn Amish. I, I want to check out I want to leave. I want to go as far away as I can. I want to check out of history and I never want to come back. I want out. Because I think when all of this happens, when evil and wickedness are exposed to that degree, I think, okay, it's over. We've lost. We're done for. But I think that way because I'm not thinking biblically. I'm not thinking in terms of what God has shown us. Because in the biblical narrative, every single time, whenever the wicked are right out there in the open, whenever they're most confident in their plans, whenever it looks like they have all the momentum and it looks like they're all working together, that's when the wheels fall off. God judges them. God openly, publicly shames them and destroys them. He gives them this opportunity to say, who are you for? I want you to step right up to the mic. I don't want you to stutter. I want you to say very clearly, 
I despise the Lord Jesus with everything that I am. Every fiber of my being, I hate God's law. I want to give you that opportunity. Come right out into the open and say that. Okay, now, now comes the judgment. Now comes destruction so that we know and see the justice of God in our time. So when you see wickedness and perversion and disgusting things displayed right out in the open, don't despair. That means your deliverance is nearer than you think. Let's give thanks and pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word and we thank you for outlining history for us in this way. Once again, we ask you to help us to walk through it with faith and not fear and not anxiety. We trust you and we hope in you and we put our faith in you. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. And now let us continue worshiping.